I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday. And I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to episode 41 of Three on the Isle, a twice-monthly podcast, when we do it twice a month, from New York, about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. And today on the podcast, we're going to go back to one of our favorite segments. feel pretty uh, secure in saying this, the, which is the mailbag. Because letters. We get lots and yeah, lots right. of letters. No, I, I am thrilled to realize like every time like the, the listeners are so involved and have such great questions because it forces us to think about things that we may take for granted, actually, many times or don't even maybe not necessarily pay attention to anymore. So I, I yeah. love the mailbag. It's nice to know what people are, like what mm-hmm. actually concerns people who go to the theater as I opposed to, to us. That. Yeah. But first, we've all been to the same show, Tina, the Tina Turner musical. And it turns out, perhaps not surprisingly, that we have quite a bit to say about it. Peter, what do you got to say about it? Well, Tina opened Thursday night in at the Lundfontein Theater. Uh, it comes from London, where it was pretty well received, I believe. It's her story, the life and times of Tina Turner, her rise and fall and rise. And I thought that all things being equal, Adrian Warren is fantastic as Tina Turner. And and it's the equivalent, therefore, of a really strong Vegas show. Uh, That's where it felt like it landed for me. And I thought, though, that she was so compelling that you could have almost taken away everything else. You didn't need the story. You didn't need the uh, ancillary characters who all seemed fairly, uh, you know, out of the manual, the how-to manual. And what you had was this galvanizing impersonation. I thought she was as good at Tina Turner almost as Tina Turner. Yeah, I hadn't listened to Tina Turner for a number of years. And... um... When I went back and looked at some video and listened to her, I was, I mean, she doesn't look that much like her. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, but it's its a very effective impersonation. She doesn't really seem like... Uh, she's too, not a Madame Tussauds no, character. No, no, and that was, that was a very good thing about it. I mean, she's, a, she's, a, she's quite a striking performer. But it is your very standard jukebox bio musical and it, it suffers They're all from, the same. It suffers from all the limitations of that genre. And this in spite of the fact that the primary writer on the book, the primary writing credit on the book goes to Katori Hall, who is one of the most imaginative and interesting playwrights who's come along in the last few years. And I wondered what she would do with this material. And what struck me as I watched, I saw it last night, was it was, to me, rather more like, especially in the first act, that she was trying to write something more like a biopic, something which is really Mm plot-driven rather than Mm song-driven, which is smart because when you think about it, Tina Turner doesn't have a whole lot of interesting music catalog to draw on. Right. Oh, my God. Oh, no, well, she has a great music catalog. Right. But she has a, an right. adequate music catalog. No, no, catalog. she has a great music catalog. But, actually, continue, because then yeah, I... Yeah, but, my... it, but it's, I mean, it reminded me of Ray, the very excellent biopic about uh, Ray Charles, which is very plot-driven. It isn't pinned on its songs as much. And uh, I don't find that the Tina Turner song catalog is particularly theatrical. Uh, it's... It's show tunes, I mean, show music to be done in shows, to be done in the Ike and Tina Turner Review. 
but when they have a piece of plot to hang it on. For me, for example, the most striking scene in the entire show is the scene in which she's in the studio with Phil Spector, and they're producing River Deep, Mountain High. And you actually, it's as though a switch has been turned and the lights come on in the theater. And suddenly you are watching a scene in which we find out what a record producer does to work with a talented performer. That actually reminded me of Love and Mercy, uh, the Beach Boys uh, film. And it was a very, it was a good scene. It was a well-written scene. Uh, it well, told you things you didn't know. And then suddenly you're back uh, with that not so very interesting score anymore. What do you think? Okay, well, I completely disagree about the catalog, but here's the problem with the Tina Turner catalog, uh, music catalog, and, and it's a problem that is at the root of the problem, the fundamental problem with the show. The best songs in the Tina Turner catalog are the one that she made with Ike when she was living and working with this absolute monster. Mm. The show, the way the show is structured is that it stopped, intermission comes in when she leaves Ike. So the most interesting stuff is in the first half. Mm. The second act is almost entirely dedicated on her making her big comeback album, Private Dancer, in the mid-80s. Private Dancer is mostly, that's the one with all the the big hits. Mm -hmm. It's mostly 80s slop. It's terrible. Mm. Tina Turner has not made good music since after leaving Ike. So mm. how do you deal with that? Right. And she That's made a... her best music with the guy who was a monster to her and to everybody around. Well, and the uh, show does not engage with that. It's sort of the structural problem of this kind of show is that very often the conflict runs out after intermission. And there's nothing driving the show after because that. then it's about success. It right. becomes hagiography of the most, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, brown nosing sort, suck upping sort. The 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 thing I thought was that you know, as we go down the the lane with these jukebox musicals, they keep tr- they keep almost like uh, trying to tweak the form to the point where it's unrecognizable as narrative. This one has songs sort of integrated into the story in which people are singing to each other. There are other songs that are performed. There are other songs that are kind of interior monologues. You know, it, it, there's in hotel rooms. You don't know what world you're in anymore or why I, they're telling it in this way except to just roll out a num- the 24 numbers. They need to be, uh, you know, in uh, I, uh, the stage. And they don't work very well because they're not theatrical songs. But you that's going to be the case with old Jukebox musicals. That's they're right. Not... You do not have new material being written that arises from the book. I mean, if you're extremely ingenious and you have a very varied catalog to work with, you might be able to make this work, but it's I, awfully difficult. But you guys are talking about the dramaturgical and sort of the, the artistic efficacy here. I'm going to say to you that as long as Adrian Warren is in this show, this thing will sell tickets because people are going to tell mm-hmm. each other you got to see her do this. Do you right. think, that's something I was wondering too, I asked myself is Tina Turner today in 2019 a sufficient draw to open and keep open a jukebox musical on Broadway? I, I just don't know. I think she is. I think because she does have a, you know, there was the, the movie with, um, Bassett it's also a very compelling story of uh, about a rebirth and a, a know, survivor. A, a survivor that always works, just from a very. It, it suffers because it also it 
she's involved in it. You know, she's one of the producers. Yes. She's about, the top, I think title. she's the top line producer. It's an authorized yeah. biography. So it becomes, it, it, you know, especially when it gets into her relationship with her current husband, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes kind of syrupy and sappy. It changes from the story of her, this brutal life, to this kind of dreamy fairy tale sort of moment between them. And it, it doesn't track and, and by the as w- theater. You know, by the way, what's interesting, this is totally a footnote, but this very American story gave up her American citizenship recently. Yes, I hadn't she be- realized she that until Swiss. I looked it up. She's Swiss. That's interesting. But you know, the other thing I'm going to say about Adrian Warren is, you know, mm-hmm. there are very few actors, musical theater actors mm-hmm. even, who can pull off this level of entertainer when she's yeah. in her element in this production, and you look at her face, there is a relaxation into mm-hmm. the the dazzling of us, the wanting to dazzle us, that is so uh, seamless, so effortless, that it's irresistible. And I think that's going to be the basis on which this show will do fine. If they can, and as long as her voice will hold out, because that voice Oof. is extraordinary. I was wondering about she, that. She, she's asking a lot of herself. She's, she's not doing matinees. Yeah. It's, that's going to be, be a tough. test. Yeah. yeah. If she's right, if she starts missing performances. But it has a kind of, dare I say, a Streisand kind of galvanizing quality, this performance. Which is very uh, palpable when they do the encores at the end. Totally. Which, by the way, those encores are from the Ike and Tina Turner catalog. They don't do the newer songs for the encores. Is he dead? Which is I dead? I can't remember. I'm not even sure. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to say something also about the physical production, because I don't think we've mentioned that it's directed by Philida Lloyd, of course, responsible, responsible for Mamma Mia. And it is such a shitty-looking production. Those projections are the worst I've seen on Broadway since, I want to say, the guys and dolls uh, projections in that revival ten years ago with Oliver Platt. You remember that one? It was so busy. bad. It was very. They're just busy. so awful. They're, it is so amateurish. Pulling, they're pulling focus from from the stage action. It looks really cheap. It's it just as though they just invented projections. And yeah. Oh my died. god. Yeah. Oh. I okay. Said, which is why I think they could do it the way they do it. Right. right. That's um, a, talking about a thankless part. Oh my god. That play, guy. You know, people were like, you know, people were actually in front of us. Sticking their thumbs down at him when he came. They, you know, I mean, I know that's a you know measure of like the, the actor looked a little sheepish. Than well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard it's to come back a, for a curtain call when you've played the the who the wants villain. to play the jerk. Well, yeah. and not only that, but there are you know there are delicious villains to play all over the place. But oh, this yeah. guy is just there to slap her around. It's horrible. Oh my God! It's by it's, the way, if if you are going to have somebody get slapped around in a show, you really <laughs> need to have a better stage combat director. That was the most unconvincing violence I've seen in I don't know when. Well, maybe that, I have a feeling that that was intentional. Because mm-hmm. you, if that you want to get a younger audience, yeah. you can't make it more realistic than that. It'll scare the hell out of them. I yeah, mean, already she ends the first act with blood dripping down her mouth, which when you think about it, is not exactly a selling point. <laughs> the fin- act one finale has blood. She's full of blood. I mean, you know, it's, you gotta it's, hit rock bottom before you, before you reach back for the stars. But so what? So if we can broaden this out for one minute, so what are we thinking? If you know, we started off by saying, uh, we were talking even before. I don't remember we said this on on air that this was sort of a, one of the showcase musicals of the first half of the season. I think so. Are we talking then about sort of rock bottom? Material that we're looking. I mean, musicals seem stuck in a in a lousy gear lately. I think the problem is that we are stuck in an age of commoditized jukebox bio musicals 
that exist to monetize somebody's catalog. And that is not a productive, creative way to write musicals. I, it's is that not what Jagged Little well. Pill is going to be? The Al- Alanis Morissette musical? I think there's more of a storyline. But, you know, actually, for me, uh, I just watched Rocket Man. The, the Elton John mm-hmm. uh, movie? Bio, the movie, yes. And actually, that's almost ready to go on stage. And that's a very imaginative way to do a biographical musical. I highly, just out of curiosity, and I'm really, by, I'm just really not a fan of Elton John's music in particular, but I've been on an Elton John tier lately. I just, I just read his, uh, his, his autobiography, which is wonderful. I highly recommend it. And the movie is a great, it's not at all what I was expecting because they really dramatize the songs mm-hmm. and they use them in completely in an a historical way. Like they will use them in the movie before they would have been written, for instance. Yeah. Uh, and it really worked. Uh, it could really be transferred onto the stage, like almost as is. I, you know, I'm thinking, Are there plans to do that? Do you know? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it feels like a natural, but it's, 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 it's wonderful. You know, every time I think, though, that this form is dead. You know, I did like Ain't Too Proud and I, the, the Temptations musical because I think that it created a consistent tone and mood and look. I, it had a feeling of, of, of completeness, that piece. Maybe because it had so many personalities sort of, you know, at, at odds with each other. I don't know. Maybe it was the choreography. I don't think it's a... I, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting for someone to create something that isn't like all the others. I think we're, we are getting used to a lesser degree of quality. Mm. We're lowering our expectations. But, but I think we're going to hit a wall because, like, how many of those shows are successful? I, I actually... Yeah, Donna I, Summer one does not do well, right? I was a big fan of the Cher show, as you may remember, uh, but that didn't do great. Um, that closed early, probably oh, earlier than expected. Hokey. I think the one that... I think the most successful in recent years has been beautiful. Yes. And one of the reasons it worked is for the exact uh, reason that Terry, you mentioned earlier, like the best scene in uh, Tina is this, the Phil Spector scene because beautiful is basically two and a half hours of that. Beautiful is really about how was pop music made at that time but, using this one peg. So it really brought you behind the scene and it had that same element of like, okay, this is how they made the songs. And I, I love that. Yeah, was, but also her songs have real depth. And there's variety. A, they have something going on. You yeah. know, there's, it's not and, just And there's a also kind of more sheen. of a link between the... Because she performed her own songs and Tina mostly did not, there's a kind of personal aspect to it where you can really peg the songs into like an emotional journey. I don't like that word, but mm. journey that, mm. that Carol King had. Whereas you can't right. really do that for Tina, who doesn't have many songwriting credits. Yeah. It doesn't detract from her artistry. I mean, right. she can be a great performer. You know, it's like the, best, the best of them all is one that isn't really a, dream, a, a jukebox musical. It was Dreamgirls was the best, you know, of this sort of... Of this of this story, yeah, you know, the it's, fictionalized it's, version was so much better than the ones that are really based intriguing. on fact. Well, it's going to be interesting to see where this show goes in mm-hmm. the next few weeks. Um, Adrian Warren's going to sell tickets. I'm telling we'll you, see. we'll it's see. It's going to be an interesting. Yeah, show. The, the Tony battle to. is going to be very heated. She's going to be a contender, and oh, I think she's the odds-on favorite. We have to see what Katrina Lang does in oh, that's company. True. company. There's, yeah, there's, that's a whole different yeah, that's a whole different ball of wax. Well, let let us then move on to our mailbag, which is full of interesting stuff uh, this week. And um, Peter, what do we got in there? 
Well, Terry, first we have a question sent in by Mike Speller in Illinois. In the last year, I've seen and paid full price for three professional shows in the Chicagoland area that lasted less than 90 minutes. Continuous action, no intermission. Should I be getting a price break? Should I be receiving a disclaimer about running time before the purchase? Is this an issue elsewhere? Uh, I don't have a problem with 90-minute long shows. I welcome them. I think that is a good natural length for a play, for ideally even a musical without an intermission. I don't think you should be paying less for it. If anything, you should be, there should be like a, a, a gratitude fee tacked on. <laughs> uh, the drama critic's prayer, if it can't be good, dear God, let please let it be short. Uh, I, 90 minutes is a comfortable length. Terrence Radigan, back in the 50s, predicted that dramas, stage drama, would move in the direction of the 80 to 90 minute range. I think that's increasingly happening today, and I don't, I don't, I see no downside to this. What do you two feel? I, I feel like if we, the question here seems to be like, am I getting my money's worth with just 90 minutes? Well, that's tricky because, for instance, I just recently saw The Sound Inside, uh, which is a new uh, play by Adam Rapp with Mary Lewis Parker on Broadway, so at Broadway prices, and it's 90 minutes, uh, and I felt. That was some of the richest, most engaging 90 minutes that I've seen in a long time. So I felt, but then I've seen, it's true, I've seen shows that are 75 minutes, 90, and I, I felt a little, they were a little, a little light. But, I, you know, it's, well, it's I, tough. I, I, Mike, I, I suspect that Mike might, <laughs> Mike might be uh, a suburban theater goer, and I'll tell you why I think that. Because people in the suburbs often are pissed off when they schlep into the city and they've parked and they plan for a night, they paid the sitter for a full night and it's over in 75 minutes. It's like, what? Hey, I just came in. It's just that this wasn't worth the time it took to get in here. I think there is a kind of, you know, amount of time per enjoyment quotient thing that goes on with some people. Now, I may be wrong. Mike may live in, you know, right, you know, in the loop or something, but it seems to me that that's often the problem, that the, the time it takes to get to a theater sometimes also reflects how you experience what you finally see and how long you sit. But I don't think, I'm often grateful for something that doesn't overstay its welcome. Yeah. I don't, I never feel like this should have been 15 minutes longer. I mean, maybe one out of a thousand shows. So I, I don't think, that, and I don't think this trend is going to change. I don't think we're going yeah, to go to that's, as long No, as and I like a show that's tight and concentrated, that says what it wants to say and then gets off. Uh, and I, obviously part of it is that the three of us go to a lot of shows. And uh, we are, as you suggest, sometimes quite grateful not to be stuck for two and a half hours or three hours. But... Uh, it never is much of an issue for me. You know, if the show is good, if everything is working, you don't think about what time it is unless the seat is uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> well, also, there's no reason somebody, you know, it, there is, you know, if you type in the name of the title of a play and write the words running time in Google, nine times out of ten, you will get a running time. You will right. know basically what you're in for. So, and I do that just almost by, um, you know, reflex yeah, me at too. this point. But so, so for Mike, I would say, you know, if you have a preference to see longer things, if you want to sit for longer, then, you know, by all means, check and see. You, your expectations then will be met by the time in which you'll have a better sense of, of evaluating how much you're paying per minute. We know where we are on that. 
So let's look at the next question in the bag, which is from Ben Grimes. Erica? You discussed a few shows back about certain shows that are black box shows and that they can often struggle when moved to larger Broadway houses. Can you please discuss this further and more specifically those elements you believe make a strong black box show versus a strong Broadway show? I just don't think there's a, a rule that we can give this um, this reader, to, we can give mm. Ben, this listener, about what works where. Yeah, it's really about having a smart director who's going to use the space and, and work very well with the lighting designer and the set designer. Right, That's, smart design. I do think more shows work better in smaller spaces than the other way around. Big shows going to small spaces than small shows mm. going to big spaces. I think my favorite theater in Manhattan is the Irish Repertory Theater's house. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. Okay, that is such it a is profound a very, oh, choice. It's That's a so diff- problematic. It is a very difficult space. It used, <laughs> oh. to, it used to be L-shaped. It's, isn't it it's, still? Uh, it's got some stage side seating, but there's a, there's a balcony now. But it, uh, it forces you to be in close to the performance. It imposes intimacy. Uh, it, you can't do a big show there. And so you have to make the theater work for you. I have never. I don't never... want the theater to work for me. <laughs> I, I absolutely. I mean, I don't have that work. I want it to work. <laughs> no, I. I have never seen a show that wasn't beautifully designed for that space to accommodate it. Well, they, they really, know the space. They so know exactly well. what they're doing. You wouldn't want to see it. anybody else use that space. Well, I can think of a lot of people I'd like to see use that space. Starting with David Cromer, somebody, somebody whom oh, I've, seen, I've seen. I've seen Cromer I... stage shows in all kinds of theaters. And he makes them work uh, because he thinks very seriously about it. He's in a different league, though. It is an interesting question, though. Are there places in your mind, psychologically, if you know you're going to see a show there, not whether or not you like the director or the actors, but you think, I don't really want to see a show again in American that space. Airlines. Yeah, the American Airlines. All right, yeah. But are there others besides that? Yes, yeah, so American Airlines is a mistake. It's, I think so, it's yeah. Too, it's too big. Um, I, like, I'm thinking, you know, classic stage. Do you like that space? I do like that space. It's like pretty sp- flexible. That's uh, an off-Broadway speech. Well, and they're, space, they're using it even more flexibly now. Yeah, it's uh, usually, you're usually sitting on in. three sides. I, I just, um, I'm never warmed up. To see, it doesn't feel like a room I want to see theater in. I've always had kind of a iffy relationship, you know, with physical relationship with that What's space. the name of the roundabouts off-Broadway space? Oh, the, Laura the Laura Pals. That theater just seems the to me, place it's sterile. It, it seems to me as though yeah. it just came out of a shoebox. Yeah. And, uh, it looks cheaply devised. I mean, I, it looks like a college theater. And again, you can make magic in any space if you're committed to doing that. But that theater has no atmosphere for Well, that's me. it. See, it's interesting. It does affect how we think about theater. Of course it does. Well, you know, but I mean, that's sort of, that to me is the root of the question, more than, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a black box show or not. It's really about the spaces that we inhabit as theater goers and whether or not they, they make you happy. We, yes, they that's right. They want, we want them to have atmosphere of their own. I always love going Something to BAM. Something that they lend the to the show. Of Music, I always love going there. That's one of my favorites. And St. Anne's, the two are big Brooklyn... Uh, so what do you think of the trend, which is maybe more true in the regions than it is here, but it is even in Sit Signature. Do you like it when there's a lovely lobby where you can sit and have a drink? Yes. Uh, so that you think that's an, an, an just a sort of aesthetic enhancement to the to the evening? I think so. I, Whether yeah, or not you have the drink. I, I don't actually, can I just say that because I'm, I'm going there tonight. Uh, I really like the, the signature complex. And I had my doubts at first because it did feel a little sterile. 
But I think, the, and they have three, so there's three different venues within that one complex. Mm. And, that, and they're all very different venues of different sizes, and they work really well. Uh, I think they offer flexibility to the shows that are in there. And there's some that are produced by signature and some are rentals. But that's always a place where I'm looking forward to going. And also, actually, they do have, as Terry was saying, they do have a very cool lobby. I feel like theaters are starting to, it's all starting to converge in this culture. They're starting to, like, theater lobbies are starting to look like restaurants and first well, class lounges at airports. And they're all sort of, every, it's like a, it's, there's a kind of thing happening where everybody has this idea of what comfort looks like. And it all has to do with dark wood and low lighting and very cushy, like, leather seats and a kind of uh, airy, sort of, you know, modern lighting. Uh, there's all these sort of, um, uh, 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 architectural sort of choices that are being uh, imposed on theaters for one or for good or bad. I mean, I, I don't I don't know that it's. I think they're sort of characterless ultimately, but it, there is this sort of trend towards that kind of you know hotel lobby look. Well, I think that's applying to like coffee shops and everything. Yeah, exactly. The Starbucks of America, right? You right. want a comfortable public area, and then an auditorium that is of a space. And, and set up that allows you to be close to the show, on top of the show. So conversely, when you're in those, so we're now we're in these Broadway theaters, we're in the most expensive spots, right? Which are mostly the most uncomfortable spots. Yeah. Where at, at, at intermission, you still sort of can't get to the bathroom if you wait five minutes because then the bar at the back of the, the orchestra is so packed that you have to like, you know, wrestle with a lady from... Sayreville, New Jersey, to get past. Right. Hey, hey! I'm from I know. Broadway. Look. I'm from New Jersey. I'm allowed to say that. Yeah, you can say that. You, 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 you can turn the. Uh, you can use that. You can reclaim it. Broadway is what it is. But you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it, it doesn't a, make any sense. That really nothing, doesn't make. They have no nothing, interest in making it more comfortable. There's for us. nothing to be done about it, though. I mean, the Broadway houses are old. Uh, they many of them date back to the teens, twenties, and thirties. Uh, they can't really be remodeled to any significant degree. Uh, they're, for all practical purposes, landmarks. Uh, they have inadequate public areas. They most particularly have inadequate restrooms. Mm. And we're stuck with them. This next question is from Harrison Krebs. I recently saw Darren Brown's Secret at the Court Theater and loved it. What I hated was the sign I saw outside the men's room. A wheelchair accessible restroom is located off premises. My jaw was on the ground. The closest Schubert house is at least a block or two away. How is this acceptable? I recently brought a non-theater industry person to a show, and they looked at a seat map and asked where people in wheelchairs sat, and I had to show her the handful of accessible seating spots at the back of the house. I felt shame and embarrassment for this industry and art I love. Where's the shame? Boy, Where's the shame in Broadway producers? Nowhere to be found. There's your answer. That's the short answer. If, if Broadway producers had shame, I think we would have heard about it. But uh, it's not I'll, the case. I'll tell you my perspective on this. I, now that I have a, a spouse who has serious mobility problems, I really can't take her to Broadway mm. uh, to, to have a wheelchair or a rollator to be carrying oxygen tanks or a concentrator, it is simply not practical for her to go to a show. And I don't know what can be done about it. Maybe nothing. As I say, these are very old theaters. But what I do know is that nobody is really thinking very hard 
about engaging with these problems. And especially now that we have an aging theater public, uh, you have baby boomers who more and more have mobility problems. Um, if we don't do something about it, uh, we're going to end up we're going to end up with a lot of problems, a lot of unhappy people, and I suspect a lot of litigation. I, I think the accessibility, situ I mean, first the the restroom situation. As a woman, I know all too well that I've perfected the art of the intermission sprint, where as soon as the light go down, I am rushing to be like in that line. Uh, it is a fact of life at all theaters, most theaters, that there's just not enough uh, women's stalls. Um, and that's actually a minor issue compared to what Terry's talking about. And I am completely, I just don't know what to do about it because as we said earlier, a lot of the houses are old, very difficult, um, it's very rare and there's a kind of radical renovation like the Helen Hayes, for instance, which is the most recent Broadway house, which had like a really very you know, top to bottom renovation uh, and has, at least on the women's side, a fairly good restroom situation. I don't know about the accessibility, but I'm going to assume. But I honestly, I think they're, the producers and the, land, the landlords are trying to cram as many bodies as possible into those seats, just like airlines. Sure. And they're going to sacrifice our well-being and 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 the, the 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 access that people in wheelchairs can have. Well, it's interesting what uh, Terry said. I mean, I, I think it is in the experience of the theater goer and and probably able abled people don't have as much understanding of this issue. I what, never did. What ever. I think about is the scene at the beginning of Sam Gold's Glass Menagerie, which was not a great production in my oh, estimation. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Okay, good for you, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. My point being that um, the the at the very beginning of that production, Sally Field had the arduous task of dragging a wheelchair up the front step, the steps leading up to the stage for the, the for the actress, the disabled actress who played Laura. And if that wasn't an, an illustration of exactly what we're talking about here, because there was essentially, I mean, the message really was, mm -hmm. you know, the stage was not built for this young woman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, any striking. more than the audience is made a is accommodated for people who don't have access completely yeah. to, you know, to full mobility. So this is, I think, this is kind of a reflection of how we think about people who don't have you, total control, but who need extra help. You know what's interesting and we is don't that really want to see them necessarily. I'm not saying I don't, right. I'm saying, but I think that's sort of a subliminal thing here. What's interesting is that at the same time, there's been an increase, I think, in awareness of uh, making performances, some of them more accessible to, uh, with, with ASL right. you know, interpretation. Exactly. It's, I was at one just like a few days ago, um, and there's also been more awareness by doing special performances for people who are on the, on the spectrum, it, it for happened instance. It happened again so in Oklahoma. Right. So she couldn't, that's the, very... the actress couldn't go up on stage to get her tone. Remember the, um, with the rest of the cast at the end oh, of the Tony? Oh, that's right. That's right. That's no. insane. That is just. She couldn't get on. She was in a wheelchair. Allie Stroker. Oh, Allie Stroker. Every God. time. We should have Allie on. Yes, we should. Every time somebody tells a story like that in public, it turns the lights on for other people 
who have never thought through the problem of accessibility. Right. I mean, now that I, as I say, now that I have a partner who has major accessibility problems, I think of the theatrical experience in a different way. I have to plan every step of it in advance in order to get her into a theater and out again. Once you've done that, you know the difference. Well, well, that that was edifying, uh, and I I feel now all energized about all you know the the issue. I I want to go like run a theater and really do it the right way. No, you're not with me. We're yeah, we're gonna run a theater once all the, the three uh, on the aisle. Playhouse. Repertory playhouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, playhouse. What, what, once, the, once all of our outlets are completely like, That's once true. the media has completely exactly. disappeared, exactly. we're going to a, a growth industry like right. theater. We'll, we'll right. self-support through the podcast. We will, you know, we will, we will, because, we will because market theater, the shows. Yeah. I, you know what? There's this new thing that the kids are raving about. It's called theater. And I think, <laughs> I think we should have a playhouse. I think uh, we're going to get uh, some, um, some funding from Silicon Valley, because I'm sure the tech people will be super into it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And it's going to do some severe disruption to streaming. <laughs> so, all right. So we're going to turn now to uh, a reg our other regular segment. And I'm going to start. Oh, yes. Uh, this part of the podcast and talk about uh, a, a show, a, a series of shows I saw uh, just this past uh, weekend in um, the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, just to get out of the the metropolitan areas for a minute and, and talk about the American Shakespeare Center in Staunton, Virginia, where they traditionally do Renaissance practices versions of, of Shakespeare. Lights on in the, um, in the, in the hall and uh, minimal props, some music played by the actors themselves. But in this case, they unveiled their first original musical and I wasn't expecting much from the first time out for a theater company, but they did something quite wonderful, uh, a piece called The Willard Suitcases. And what was great about it, it's almost more of a song cycle than a, than a full-blown narrative, but it's about, it's taken from, it's inspired by photographs that were taken by a photographer named John Crispin of suitcases left behind at, an, at an, an abandoned insane asylum in upstate New York, in Seneca, New York, called the Williams, Willard State Psychiatric Center. Originally, the, it was founded in the 1860s. And uh, what the composer-lyricist Julianne Wick Davis does with this is constructs songs about each suitcase and what the contents are and who might have possessed it. This is a great premise. It's, it's a wonderful premise. It sure is. And, she, and the variety of stories that she creates out of those suitcases is so moving. Everything from someone who didn't belong in the asylum, who was wrongly sent there for like, for like some minor problem, um, to an angel of death, someone who actually, a nurse who actually injected patients. Oh, wow. There's a song about that. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, with, you know, hypodermic, I guess, air in the needles, to, uh, to stories that are told from the point of view of letter writers, both to inmates and from inmates. It, and it, it goes all the way into the 60s. It goes from the 1860s to the 1960s, or 70s even. And it creates such a great uh, atmosphere of, it's such a great story way to tell stories and to bring you into a very human issue that we just don't get any sense it's of. It's such a great concept. You know, like, I don't know why, like there's always this talk, I mean, not always, but often this talk of like, oh, musicals are running out of ideas. Mm, They're always exactly. adapting movies or doing jukeboxes. But like, no, there are ideas around. You just have to 
look for them. Like one of my favorite musicals of the past few years was this little Canadian musical called Ride the Cyclone. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys saw it. No, but I didn't. So inventive and funny, and I'm so bummed that it didn't have the life that I think it deserved. Right. But anyway, but it goes to show that it is. There's still people doing great stuff out yeah. there. Yeah, and it's done in all the the songs are in a singer songwriter style. Uh, the actors play the, all the instruments. Um, there's a great song uh, by a a woman who's written. It's almost an assassin's style. She's written a letter to Herbert Hoover. This kind of rant, this crazy rant. You know, she claims to be his big supporter, and, but she wants to get out of the asylum and hoping she, he'll help her. You know, so the the ways in which Miss um, Davis uh, manipulates our idea of of what could possibly mm-hmm. be inspired by a suitcase is, is, is marvelous. You uh, have me on board for this. I would love to see it. Oh, yeah, that, you did a really good pitch there. Oh, good. And I love American Shakespeare Center, which I haven't been to for a decade. Yeah. It's a little hard to get to sure. from New York, but it's absolutely It's about two worth... hours south of, of Washington. Yeah, but it's really worth the trip. Yeah. It's one of the houses I like best. Well, speaking of shows, musicals, um, that are off the beaten path, take a different approach. Elizabeth and I both saw one. In fact, it was last night. It was a new stage version of uh, Cyrano de Bergerac, uh, the Rostalin play, uh, called Cyrano, starring Peter Dinklage, uh, who, as we all know, from eight seasons in Game of Thrones, is a colossally uh, uh, exciting and involving character actor who is also... Uh, four foot four um, and who although we don't get to see him enough on the stage is I think potentially one of the best stage actors we've got around if he decides that he wants to do more Are, of it he's done theater on and off very regularly for the past at least like 15 right. years so but, it's not, uh, not, like, not near, enough not nearly as much as I, he ought I, to I, I agree with you there so yeah. we're talking about you know getting shows with different kinds of scores uh, the songs for this Cyrano were written by the members of the indie rock group The National, uh, which um, a couple of months ago on Twitter, I asked my millennial friends to tell me <laughs> a, a group that they especially liked that appealed to them particularly. I got more people telling me to listen to The National than any other band. And I listened and I was tremendously impressed um, for a lot of reasons. But on the other hand, uh, if you're going to write a score for a show, you need to know what show music sounds like and how it works, how it functions in the theatrical uh, setting. And I felt that the weakest aspect of this otherwise enormously attractive and and open hearted, touching show is that the songwriters for the National don't really seem to grasp what show tunes do, how they they adjust the pace of a show, how they uh, control its speed, how they set up climaxes, um, all of their numbers, which are minimalist influenced. Uh, the band is actually, the, this must be the first uh, musical show score I've ever heard that was quite clearly influenced by Philip Glass, uh, all kind of jog along in a roughly the same tempo. Uh, <laughs> They don't. They, there is not the kind of variety built into this score, the kind of theatrical variety that drives a show in the way that you need in order to make it work. And so I came away from this otherwise very lovely Cyrano 
feeling that I'd seen half a musical, that I had seen an adaptation of the play that I think would work quite well done on its own without the songs, and songs that just don't bring life to the theatrical experience. And I want, I mean, I enjoyed it uh, because of Dinklage, because of the wonderful adaptation and staging of Erica Schmidt, the other people in the cast, but I wanted to like this show more than I did. And for the first 15 minutes or so, I thought, this is going to work. And by the end, I thought it didn't quite get to the finish line for me. Okay, I um, I actually quite enjoyed the score, much to my surprise, because one, it's by the national event that I really do not care about. And two, it's in the chamber musical, acoustic chamber musical vein, a vein that I am also not a fan of, uh, because it always ends up sounding beige. Beige, I like that. Beige. I like that. I call them the beige musicals, and that is one. But mm. I thought the songs, several of them were very effective, actually. What really bugged me about the show, which is weird because I overall actually enjoyed it. it. It worked despite itself. But there's a huge, huge, huge problem with this show. To recap, if you're not familiar with Cyrano, Cyrano is about the title character who in the original has a huge nose. He has a disfiguring nose and is mocked by everybody for, his, for this nose. He's in love with a woman named Roxanne who is in love in turn, or thinks she's in love with, with a very handsome idiot named Christian. <laughs> yes. And so Cyrano basically uses Christian as a, as a puppet to talk to Roxanne about how much she loves her, and she falls in love with the words that she thinks come from Christian. So the whole point of Cyrano, the character, is that this is a man who has been who's so used to being vilified and mocked for this physical deformity, because it is so huge that knows that it is a physical deformity, that he uses his very impressive wit to go back to turn the attacks against the attacker. The show Pièce de Résistance is the nose monologue where he talks about his nose. Okay, say, you know, you think it's big. No, it's a peak, it is, it's huge, you know. So he goes on and on, it's very famous. What happens is, in this version, Cyrano does not have, has a regular nose. The nose is not the point. The point clearly is that Cyrano is a dwarf, and this is why he feels that he has no chance with Roxanne. This is never mentioned, so Cyrano does not have the opportunity to return the epithets and the insults against the people who hurl them at him, because you cannot use the unmentioned you know, in a witty way. So we lose this huge, and now Cyrano basically is a really great play in that it is really ahead of its time in the way an oppressed minority, talking very broadly here, can use uh, uh, an insult, like, you know, it could be the N-word, it could be queer, it could be any number of things against people who use them. It's the acts of reclamation that Cyrano does. But because it is not mentioned here, there's nothing to replace the nose here, so we lose a huge aspect of what makes the character work and what makes the character what he is. So it's a kinder, gentler Cyrano. It, one, I would say it's a cowardly Cyrano. It may be, but it's also one. Ooh. It's also one that's completely oriented to the romanticism of the show. 
Yes, it but it doesn't open, work as, and I agree. It's an I agree. open-hearted, very warm production. And, and I really but enjoy that very is, much. But it is evasive in the way that you say. So that, I really miss that, because I think that would have given the show a kind of, just a kind of, uh, I don't want to say anger, because it's not that, but it would have given, it would have made the character what the character is meant to be. And I think, actually, casting, Dink I didn't realize it was pronounced Dinklage, by the way. I thought it was Dinklage. Beats but, me. Oh, maybe. I never Dinklage, pronounce anything right. Dinklage. Oh, you're telling me I never <laughs> pronounce anything right. Oh, God. Oh, God. Let's blame it on the accent. It always works. Um, anyway, so it was. it's great to cast him because he's a really incredibly charismatic actor. Like, his charisma is off the charts. The guy is unbelievable. He's and so a great physical actor, he's, too. He's really I mean, wonderful. And he has a fantastic voice. Um, so I, I feel like he could have done it, but there's this, like, ah, they, they just don't want to go there. They don't want to say, okay, well, you... I don't mind the nose. It's fine. Get rid of the, the whole nose. But the nose represents something that has to be in there. So that said, <laughs> I was entertained constantly. I had a really good time at the show. I, you know, we've mentioned in previous podcasts, the, it's not really good, but it's kind of great. That really fits in that category. The show has huge problems. But I was completely charmed because the, the love story between Cyrano and Roxanne really works. The, the, um, he's paired with uh, Jasmine uh, Cephas uh, Jones. Yes. Who was one of the original Scala sisters in oh, Hamilton? Boy, she's, she's good. She's lovely. If, you, if your um, heart doesn't go out to her, uh, a transplant may be in order. <laughs> Absolutely. And that last scene is such a tearjerker, and I mean yeah. that in the best possible way. Yes. Because the theater needs tearjerker. It's like it's reaching out into your your chest cavity where your heart is meant to be. Most people, it should be there, but if you don't react. In the, you know, if you're not like tearing about that last scene, like I, I think it's just like your case is hopeless. I don't think the show really has got a future because of the flaws in it, because of the weakness of the score, because of of the the shortage of wit. But it does have charm. It does have heart. Uh, I think if you go to see it, uh, you'll be touched by it. And also a wonderful set, I thought, by Christine Jones. Really good design. Really, really smart use of a kind of not easy space. A wide, shallow um, space, yeah. Very wide. Uh, Christine Jones was wonderful. She did the Harry Potter uh, mm -hmm. set. And this is in a completely different <laughs> because clearly it's like a millionth of the budget. Very inventive, mm -hmm. uh, very evocative. Um, really good job there. Good job. I think that we've... <laughs> We've all seen a lot of interesting things in the course of the last couple of weeks. I know I have. Uh, these are difficult times for me because of my wife's illness. But I find that to be able to disappear into a show is the greatest pleasure imaginable. Mm. Theater, oh, theater truly the great consolation. And mm. uh, also nice to come here and talk about it with my friends. Oh, I agree. Totally. You're tearing up again at the national is not even, it's not even playing. <laughs> no, we're all we're all getting soft. We're all getting soft. Yeah, we yeah, need to yeah. do something cuz the next us, one take we us need back to, to the woodshed. We need to disagree Indeed. about something really terrible well, next time. I'm sure we can come up with that, but in oh, the yeah. meantime, I think uh the clock has run out on us and uh we thank you all for joining us. I am Terry Teachout. I'm Peter Marks. And I'm Elizabeth Finchantelli. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer is Erica Wong. 
You can follow us on Twitter at 3 on the Isle, spell it out, and write to us also at 3 on the Isle at gmail.com. Please let us know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes. And don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play. We'll be with you again soon on the Isle. Thank you.